Chapter 16, Part 6 The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 2 by Edward Gibbon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 2 by Edward Gibbon, Chapter 16 Conduct Towards the Christians from Nero to Constantine, Part 6. Although the policy of Diocletian and the humanity of Constantius incline them to preserve inviolate the maximums of toleration, it was soon discovered that their two associates, Maximian and Galerius, entertained the most implacable aversion for the name and religion of the Christians. The minds of those princes had never been enlightened by science, education had never softened their temper. They owed their greatness to their swords, and in their most elevated fortune they still retained the superstitious prejudices of soldiers and peasants. In the general administration of the provinces they obeyed the laws which their benefactor had established, but they frequently found occasions of exercising within their camp and palaces a secret persecution, for which their imprudent zeal of the Christians sometimes offered the most spacious pretenses. A sentence of death was executed upon Maximilianus, an African youth, who had been produced by his own father before the magistrate as a sufficient and legal recruit, but who obstinately persisted in declaring that his conscience would not permit him to embrace the profession of a soldier. It could scarcely be expected that any government should suffer the action of Marcellus the centurion to pass with impunity. On the day of a public festival, that officer threw away his belt, his arms, and the ensigns of his office, and exclaimed with a loud voice that he would obey none but Jesus Christ, the eternal King, and that he renounced forever the use of carnal weapons and the service of an idolatrous master. The soldiers, as soon as they had recovered from their astonishment, secured the person of Marcellus. He was examined in the city of Tingi by the president of that part of Mauritania, and as he was convicted by his own confession, he was condemned and beheaded for the crime of desertion. Examples of such nature savor much less of religious persecution than of martial or even civil law, but they serve to alienate the mind of the emperors, to justify the severity of Galerius, who dismissed a great number of Christian officers from their employments, and to authorize the opinion that a sect of enthusiastics, which avowed principles so repugnant to the public safety, must either remain useless, or would soon become dangerous subjects of the empire. After the success of the Persian war had raised the hopes and reputation of Galerius, he passed a winter with Diocletian in the palace of Nicomedia, and the fate of Christianity became the object of their secret consultations. The experienced emperor was still inclined to pursue measures of lenity, and though he readily consented to exclude the Christians from holding any employments in the household or the army, he urged in the strongest terms the danger as well as cruelty of shedding the blood of those deluded fanatics. Galerius at length extorted from him the permission of summoning a council, 
composed of a few persons the most distinguished in the civil and military departments of the state. The important question was agitated in their presence, and those ambitious courtiers easily discerned that it was incumbent upon them to second, by their eloquence, the importunate violence of the Caesar. It may be presumed that they insisted on every topic which might interest the pride, the piety, or the fears of their sovereign in the destruction of Christianity. Perhaps they represented that the glorious work of the deliverance of the empire was left imperfect, as long as an independent people was permitted to subsist and multiply in the heart of the provinces. The Christians, it might specially be alleged, renouncing the gods and the institutions of Rome, had constituted a distinct republic, which might yet be suppressed before it had acquired any military force, but which was already governed by its own laws and magistrates, was possessed of a public treasure, and was intimately connected in all parts by the frequent assemblies of the bishops, to whose decrees their numerous and opulent congregations yielded an implicit obedience. Arguments like these may seem to have determined the reluctant mind of Diocletian to embrace a new system of persecution. But though we may suspect, it is not in our power to relate the secret intrigues of the palace, the private views and resentments, the jealousy of women or eunuchs, and all those trifling but decisive causes which so often influence the fate of empires and the counsels of the wisest monarchs. The pleasure of the emperors was at length signified to the Christians who, during the course of this melancholy winter, had expected with anxiety the result of so many secret consultations. The 23rd of February, which coincided with the Roman festival of Terminalia, was appointed, whether from accident or design, to set bounds to the progress of Christianity. At the earliest dawn of day, the Praetorian prefect, accompanied by several generals, tribunes, and officers of the revenue, repaired to the principal church of Nicomedia, which was situated on an eminence in the most populous and beautiful part of the city. The doors were instantly broke open. They rushed into the sanctuary, and as they searched in vain for some visible object of worship, they were obliged to content themselves with committing to the flames the volumes of the Holy Scripture. The ministers of Diocletian were followed by a numerous body of guards and pioneers who marched in order of battle and were provided with all the instruments used in the destruction of fortified cities. By their incessant labor, a sacred edifice, which towered above the imperial palace, and had long excited the indignation and envy of the Gentiles, was in a few hours leveled with the ground. The next day the general edict of persecution was published, and though Diocletian, still adverse to the effusion of blood, had moderated the fury of Galerius, who proposed that every one refusing to offer sacrifice should immediately be burnt alive, the penalties inflicted on the obstinacy of the Christians might be deemed sufficiently rigorous and effectual. 
It was enacted that their churches in all the providences of the empire should be demolished to their foundations, and the punishment of death was denounced against all who should presume to hold any secret assemblies for the purpose of religious worship. The philosophers, who now assumed the unworthy office of directing the blind zeal of persecution, had diligently studied the nature and genius of the Christian religion, and, as they were not ignorant that the speculative doctrines of the faith were supposed to be contained in the writings of the prophets, of the evangelists, and of the apostles, they most probable suggested the order that the bishops and presbyters should deliver all their sacred books into the hands of the magistrates, who were commanded under the severest penalties to burn them in a public and solemn manner. By the same edict, the property of the church was at once confiscated, and the several parts by which it might consist were either sold to the highest bidder, united to the imperial domain, bestowed on the cities and corporations, or granted to the solicitations of rapturous courtiers. After taking such effectual measures to abolish the worship and to dissolve the government of the Christians, it was thought necessary to subject to the most intolerable hardships the condition of those perverse individuals who should still reject the religion of nature, of Rome, and of their ancestors. Persons of a liberal birth were declared incapable of holding any honors or employments. Slaves were forever deprived of the hopes of freedom, and the whole body of the people were put out of the protection of the law. The judges were authorized to hear and to determine every action that was brought against the Christian. But the Christians were not permitted to complain of any injury which they themselves had suffered. And thus, those unfortunate sectaries were exposed to the severity, while they were excluded from the benefits of public justice. This new species of martyrdom, so painful and lingering, so obscure and ignominious, was perhaps the most proper to weary the constancy of the faithful. Nor can it be doubted that the passions and interests of mankind were disposed on this occasion to second the designs of the emperors. But the policy of a well-ordered government must sometimes have interposed in behalf of the oppressed Christians, nor was it possible for the Roman princes entirely to remove the apprehension of punishment, or to connive at every act of fraud and violence without exposing their own authority and the rest of their subjects to the most alarming dangers. This edict was scarcely exhibited to public view in the most conspicuous place of Nicodemia before it was torn down by the hands of a Christian who expressed at the same time by the bitterest invectives his contempt as well as abhorrence for such impious and tyrannical governors. His offense, according to the mildest laws, amounted to treason and deserved death. And if it be true that he was a person of rank and education, those circumstances could serve only to aggravate his guilt. He was burnt, or rather roasted, by a slow fire, and his executioners, zealous to revenge the personal insult which had been offered to the emperors, exhausted every refinement of cruelty, without being able to subdue his patience or to alter the steady and insulting smile 
which in his dying agonies he still preserved in his countenance. The Christians, though they confessed that his conduct had not been strictly conformable to the laws of prudence, admired the divine fervor of his zeal, and the excessive commendations which they lavished on the memory of their hero and martyr contributed to fix a deep impression of terror and hatred in the mind of Diocletian. His fears were soon alarmed by the view of a danger from which he very narrowly escaped. Within fifteen days the palace of Nicodemia and even the bedchamber of Diocletian were twice in flames, and though both times they were extinguished without any material damage, the singular repetition of the fire was justly considered as an evident proof that it had not been the effect of chance or negligence. The suspicion naturally fell on the Christians, and it was suggested, with some degree of probability, that those desperate fanatics, provoked by their present sufferings and apprehensive of impending calamities, had entered into a conspiracy with their faithful brethren, the eunuchs of the palace, against the lives of the two emperors, whom they detested as the irreconcilable enemies of the church of God. Jealousy and resentment prevailed in every breast, but especially in that of Diocletian. A great number of persons, distinguished either by the offices which they had filled or by the favor which they had enjoyed, were thrown into prison. Every mode of torture was put into practice, and the court, as well as the city, was polluted with many bloody executions. But as it was found impossible to extort any discovery of this mysterious transaction, it seems incumbent on us either to presume the innocence or to admire the resolution of the sufferers. A few days afterwards, Galerius hastily withdrew himself from Nicomedia, declaring that if he delayed his departure from that devoted palace, he should fall a sacrifice to the rage of the Christians. The ecclesiastical historians, from whom alone we derive a partial and imperfect knowledge of this persecution, are at a loss how to account for the fears and dangers of the emperors. Two of these writers, a prince and a rhetorician, were eyewitnesses of the fire of Nicomedia. The one ascribes it to lightning and the divine wrath. The other affirms that it was kindled by the malice of Galerius himself. As the edict against the Christians was designed for a general law of the whole empire, and as Diocletian and Galerius, though they might not wait for the consent, were assured of the concurrence of the western princes, it would appear more consonant with our ideas of policy that the governors of all the provinces should have received secret instructions to publish on one and the same day this declaration of war within their respective departments. It was at least to be expected that the convenience of the public highways and established posts would have enabled the emperors to transmit their orders with the utmost dispatch from the palace of Nicomedia to the extremities of the Roman world, and that they would not have suffered fifty days to elapse before the edict was published in Syria, and near four months before it was signified to the cities of Africa. 
This delay may perhaps be imputed to the cautious temper of Diocletian, who had yielded a reluctant consent to the measures of persecution, and who was desirous of trying the experiment under his more immediate eye before he gave way to the disorders and discontent which it must inevitably occasion in the distant provinces. At first, indeed, the magistrates were restrained from the effusion of blood, but the use of every other severity was permitted, and even recommended to their zeal. Nor could the Christians, though they cheerfully resigned the ornaments of their churches, resolve to interrupt their religious assemblies, or to deliver their sacred books to the flames. The pious obstinacy of Felix, an African bishop, appears to have embarrassed the subordinate ministers of the government. The curator of his city sent him in chains to the proconsul. The proconsul transmitted him to the Proterian prefect of Italy, and Felix, who disdained even to give an evasive answer, was at length beheaded at Venusia in Lucania, a place on which the birth of Horace was conferred fame. This precedent, and perhaps some imperial or rescript, was issued in consequence of it, appeared to authorize the governors of provinces in punishing with death the refusal of Christians to deliver up their sacred books. There were undoubtedly many persons who embraced this opportunity of obtaining the crown of martyrdom, but there were likewise too many who purchased an ignominious life by discovering and betraying the Holy Scripture into the hands of infidels. A great number, even of bishops and presbyters, acquired by this criminal compliance the opprobious epithet of traditors, and their offense was productive of much present scandal and of much future discord in the African church. The copies, as well as the versions of Scripture, were already so multiplied in the empire that the most severe inquisition could no longer be attended with any fatal consequences, and even the sacrifice of those volumes, which in every congregation were preserved for public use, required the consent of some treacherous and unworthy Christians. But the ruin of the churches was easily effected by the authority of the government, and by the labor of the pagans. In some provinces, however, the magistrates contented themselves with shutting up the places of religious worship. In others, they more literally complied with the terms of the edict, and after taking away the doors, the benches, and the pulpit, which they burnt as if it were a funeral pile, they completely demolished the remainder of the edifice. It is perhaps to this melancholy occasion that we should apply a very remarkable story, which is related with so many circumstances of variety and improbability, that it serves rather to excite than satisfy our curiosity. In a small town in Phygria, of whose names, as well as situation, we are left ignorant, it should seem that the magistrates and the body of the people had embraced the Christian faith, and, as some resistance might be apprehended to the execution of the edict, the governor of the province was supported by numerous detachment of legionnaires. On their approach, the citizens threw themselves into the church 
with the resolution either of defending by arms that sacred edifice, or of perishing in its ruins. They indignantly rejected the notice and permission which was given them to retire, till the soldiers, provoked by their obstinate refusal, set fire to the building on all sides, and consumed, by this extraordinary kind of martyrdom, a great number of Fijians, with their wives and children. Some slight disturbances, though they were suppressed almost as soon as excited in Syria and the frontiers of Armenia, afforded the enemies of the church a very plausible occasion to insinuate that those troubles had been secretly fomented by the intrigues of the bishops, who had already forgotten their ostentatious professions of passive and unlimited obedience. The resentment or the fears of Diocletian at length transported him beyond the bounds of moderation which he had hitherto preserved, and he declared in a series of cruel edicts his intention of abolishing the Christian name. By the first of these edicts the governors of the provinces were directed to apprehend all persons of the ecclesiastical order, and their prisons, destined for the vilest criminals, were soon filled with a multitude of bishops, presbyters, deacons, readers, and exorcists. By a second edict, the magistrates were commanded to employ every method of severity which might reclaim them from their odious superstition, and oblige them to return to the established worship of the gods. This rigorous order was extended by a subsequent edict to the whole body of Christians, who were exposed to a violent and general persecution. Instead of those salutary restraints which had required the direct and solemn testimony of an accuser, it became the duty as well as the interest of the imperial officers to discover, to pursue, and to torment the most obnoxious among the faithful. Heavy penalties were denounced against all who should presume to save a prescribed secretary from the just indignation of the gods and the emperors. Yet, notwithstanding the severity of this law, the virtuous courage of many of the pagans, in concealing their friends or relations, affords an honorable proof that the rage of superstition had not extinguished in their minds the sentiments of nature and humanity. End of chapter 16, Conduct Toward the Christians, Part 6